There's a lot of people out there, y'all, who say they have a personal relationship with God, but don't have much of a personal relationship that undermines their, their claim to have uh, a relationship with God. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're lying. It doesn't mean that they're unregenerate. But it is indicative of a spiritual immaturity. Spiritual maturity works out in the horizontal. Spiritual maturity most often works out in the horizontal. The proving ground for Christians, the place where our faith is most stretched and tested and grown, is in our relationships with one another. We don't get to just stay on the mountaintop with Jesus, do we? We Eventually, we have to come down, as Moses did, and mingle with disappointing people. Spiritual maturity really works out in the horizontal. Because how can you love the God you cannot see if you can't love the image of God in your neighbor that you can see? The commandments, as we talked about the last couple Sundays, talking about the law of God, are summed up simply in love God and love neighbor. And we can't, we can't see those things as separate. They are linked. Loving God looks like loving neighbor. Loving neighbor looks like loving God. We can, in other words, we can't, we can't be really, really good at the one and be bad at the other. If we're bad at one, we're bad at both. If we're not loving neighbor, we're probably not loving God. And now we're, we're about to launch into this, uh, this horizontal aspect you know, if you're missing me there, sort of our vertical relationship with God, our horizontal relationship with, with other people. We're launching into this horizontal aspect of loving neighbor over the next few weeks because that's where Jesus is taking us in his Sermon on the Mount. So let's read now God's word beginning in Matthew chapter 5, at verse 21. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you always for your word. It is a, it is a gift to us that uh, we confess we do not deserve. But Father, I pray that we would treasure it. And that you would be pleased this morning to use me, a, a fallible man, to handle your infallible word carefully. And, and that by the power of your spirit, you would bring it to bear on the souls of your people for your glory and for the, the good of your people. May your church be strengthened everywhere this Lord's day. As people from every tongue, tribe, people, people and nation gather in your holy name. May your name as we prayed earlier, Lord, be be hallowed in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. In, in my counsel of others, which uh, 
the Lord has blessed me with a lot lately, um, inside and outside the church. And my counsel of others, my starting point is always, what does God say? What does God say? After the issue is on the floor, the details have been shared, the struggles and frustrations are aired, uh, the, the, the venting of emotions, the conversation necessarily has to turn to what does God say? Because I can say lots of things. But I, I can't fix anyone. I, I might even be able to persuade someone to change, but whatever change that takes place is only temporary if the Holy Spirit is not at work in that. No matter what people are going through, they don't need good advice. They need God's good news. His written word is sufficient to speak into our situations. And his word is the balm that the Holy Spirit rubs into the wound. It's, it's the bridle in our mouths that steers our untamed hearts. And this sort of mini-series within our series on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm, I'm calling untamed hearts, because that's what we have. We have untamed hearts. But thankfully, by God's grace, our hearts are being tamed, aren't they? Aren't we, be, aren't we being subdued by God's work in our life, by the Holy Spirit in us, taming our hearts? So over the course of the next several weeks, we're looking at what Jesus says about our sinful heart attitudes and the sins that we commit that testify to those heart attitudes. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's, he's revealing something deeper. Not just the fruit of sinful behavior, but the root of that sinful behavior. You know, there, there's, there's always a lot of attention on the external. There was then, there is now, right? What we're most most likely to do is to, to look at the surface level, what's on the outside. What Jesus is trying to do here is to force people to look on the inside where the change needs to occur. He's finished talking about how he came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, remember? And he moves into what the law is really about. People think they're keeping the sixth commandment, do not murder, because they haven't murdered anyone. They've never struck anyone down dead. They think they're sexually pure because they've never, never slept with anyone, certainly never slept with anyone other than their spouse. So yeah, check, got that one covered. But now Jesus brings it home a little bit harder, doesn't he? What he doesn't do, all right, I want to make this clear because sometimes people lose it here. Sometimes people get this wrong. Jesus is not raising the bar, all right? He's not raising the bar. It's not like he's saying, must be this tall to ride Judaism, Old Testament stuff, must be this tall to ride Christianity. That's, that's not what he's doing. We said last week, didn't we? God does not change. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. God does not change. Jesus, what he's doing here, he's only putting a spotlight on how high the bar actually is and always has been. Because they've missed it. He's not giving a new law. He's not improving on an old one. He's showing them what keeping the law really means and how far short we fall of it and therefore how desperately we need to be redeemed. That we need that lawgiver to be our law keeper as we talked about a couple weeks ago. So the opening line to every one of these passages we'll cover in this, this mini-series as I'm calling it is you have heard, blank, 
but I say. That's what Jesus says over and over. And it would be wrong to think that Jesus is saying, this is the way the Old Testament went down, but I'm showing you something different. Jesus isn't you know, putting down a trump card here or something like that. The reason he says what he says here is because there was this oral tradition among the religious leaders of the day that distorted what God had said and intended for his people to know. Jesus says, you have heard what I say. And when he says, wherever he says, I say, what I want you to read there is, it is written. It is written. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, what did he say? It is written. When he was tempted to believe something that wasn't true, when he was tempted to believe God was something other than he was, Jesus' response is simple. It is written. What is written is what Jesus, the eternal word of God, don't we read that? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. What we have at Christmas time is the word come in the flesh. What is written is what Jesus, the eternal word of God made flesh, has said. You have heard from men, but I say it is written. He takes them back to what was always the case. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So two things here. First, there's a greater judgment than the judgment of man, isn't there? There's a greater judgment than the judgment of man. The second thing is, there's greater judgment for what you think is a lesser infraction. It's a sin and a crime to murder someone, obviously. It's not a crime, but it's still a sin akin to murder to be angry with someone. And that sin is liable to judgment. Are all sin, this is a good question to answer. I want you all to think about this for just a second. Are all sins equal in the eyes of God? I see some heads doing this. Some head's doing this. So let's work that out, okay? As, as confessional Presbyterians, you know, we talk about the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism. There's just great instruction in there with loads, truckloads of scriptural references that help tease out some of these questions that we're like, well, kind of, sort of, maybe not, maybe both. And the answer, the answer is both. There are some sins that are more egregious than others, okay? It, is it worse for me to kill Joseph or lie to Joseph? Come on, y'all. Right? I mean, a seminary professor kind of posed that before, and he's like, unbelievers know this stuff. Come on, right? <laughs> Obviously, it's worse for me to kill my brother than to lie to my brother. Now, here's the deal, though, okay? But even one white lie, even one white lie is enough to separate you from a holy and righteous God for all of eternity. So isn't the answer yes and no? And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. Don't think you're doing all right because you haven't gone on a killing spree. Don't think you have kept my, my sixth commandment perfectly because you're not Jeffrey Dahmer. You've got a heart that is prone to anger and you actually justify your anger. That's a problem. Here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Anger is an accusation that God got it wrong. Our anger toward our neighbors reveals an anger toward God. 
When we are angry toward others, it's usually because, according to us, that should have gone down differently. My will wasn't done here. That's what we say when we're angry. And what that reveals is a self-righteousness in you that thinks you're God and that you're entitled to get your way and to never be sinned against. Everyone ought to know better, shouldn't they? We become angry when we are painfully reminded that we are not in control and the world doesn't revolve around us. Those are painful reminders. The obedience, as it turns out, the obedience of all people to Jesus all, all around the world is not owed to us. It's owed to Jesus. And so it turns out that anger is more than just a, nu- a nuisance. It's, it's dangerous and it's idolatrous. It's idolatrous. Because we assume, admittedly, unintentionally, unknowingly, but we assume we are gods with godlike entitlements. It reveals a discontentment with God and his sovereignty. Anger is an accusation that God got it wrong. And we'll, we'll work that out a little bit. I've got three points for you this morning. The fruit of anger, all right, and you can think if you're taking notes, like that's the, kind of the stuff you can see, right? The obvious manifestation of sin, the fruit of anger, the root of anger, and then the remedy for anger. Those are your three points. Fruit of anger. I, I know everyone can probably relate to this pretty easily. Maybe this is, this is like, for me as a preacher, this is an easy on-ramp. Like, I don't need to help you figure out how this works because we've, we've all been angry. We've all, we've all had someone angry with us. We know what it looks like. Right? This is a really easy talking point here. We know what it looks like, but it's probably a good idea to nail down some kind of working biblical definition that we can latch onto as we move through this. So here it is. Anger is an emotion that arises out of a judgment. Catch what I'm throwing? Anger is an emotion that arises out of a judgment that, that, that we've made. You know, it's funny... As I was preparing this message, what always, what always happens, of course, this gets preached to me first. God pummels me into the ground first. And as I'm thinking about how he's, how he's been so kind and worked through my life and, and, and really helped me get through a, a, an awareness and a recognition I was angry when I didn't even think I was angry and, and praising him for how far he'd brought me, Thursday we got a puppy and it all went out the window. <laughs> and as I was telling somebody earlier, it's, it's easier to train a puppy than it is to train five little boys. We've got six, but one can't do much of anything yet. It's harder to train five little boys on how to train a puppy. That's hard. And the frustrations and all the, my will's not being done that happen from Thursday to now are endless. So the humility that comes with that, it's good, but it's painful, it hurts. But we all know what this looks like. As people made in the image of God, we have a built-in sense of justice, don't we? Don't we all have a built-in sense of justice? We are hardwired to think in terms of oughts. You ought to do this. You ought not do that. And just as, as an aside, evolution can't give you that, by the way. You realize that. The atheist who assumes all that is material and that everything just happened by chance, 
can claim what is the case. I mean, they've got eyes, ears. They can, they can tell you what is the case. They can never tell you what ought to be the case. There's no basis for morality and no explanation for our sense of justice we all know we have in atheistic thinking. The atheist saws off the branch he's sitting on every time he complains about literally anything. Where do you get off complaining? Who, who says it ought not to be this other way, right? Christians are right to complain because we have reason to complain. We know that we live in a fallen world vandalized by sin. So we have a sense of justice and what ought to be. Problem is, our senses are distorted. Our reasoning is fallen. Our judgments are, our justice is perverted. We justify our anger when our anger isn't justifiable. So as you heard me talk with the children a moment ago, is there such a thing as justifiable anger? Of course. There's, this, there's such a thing as righteous anger. You know, we can't think of anger as always being sinful because God expresses anger and God is not, he cannot sin. Jesus expressed a righteous anger, didn't he? When he flipped over the money changing tables and drove people out of the temple with a whip. Usually when we're angry, it's directed at what we perceive to be a sin against us rather than a sin that's directed against the holiness of God. When we're angry, it's usually because we've seen ourselves as being sinned against. You know, we get cut off in traffic and then we wave at the person with 20% of our hand. That's funny if you do the math. Someone's late to an appointment with you or you go to a doctor's appointment or something like that, you're waiting around forever. You get, you get angry. You, don't you know how precious my time is? I mean, don't you ever feel deeply offended that way? Like, you ought to know better. You don't cross me. You know who I am, right? You silently rage out against that person and you hold it against them as if they had profaned the name of the Lord. <laughs> Righteous anger isn't self-focused that way, though, okay? Righteous anger does exist, but it has no self-focus. It's focused on God's kingdom, not yours. And so I just, all that to say, you know, it's, it's, it's different than what we're talking about this morning. Getting angry because you didn't get what you wanted or because things didn't go your way is very different than getting angry because things are not going the way God says. And that's the anger we're all familiar with, the sinful anger. So that's the one we're going to talk about this morning. We claim we had a right, don't we? We defend our rights. We claim they got what they deserved. What the fruit of anger looks like is oftentimes outbursts, yelling, hurting people. We're familiar with all that. But it looks like other things too. You know, tensions arising, creating sort of relational problems at work. Un unspoken tensions and things like that. Um, you know, affecting personal relationships. Those same sort of tensions uh, between you and, and other people. And it begins to affect your sleep. You can't rest as well. It looks like bitterness can cause you to become depressed, to become anxious, to be on edge all the time, ready to blow a fuse at any moment, like all the stuff we just read in Proverbs about being quick to anger. It's easy. You have the edginess, that fear response. 
It affects your overall quality of life. Here's what ultimately happens. You end up being at the mercy of an unmerciful emotion. Anger is an unmerciful emotion. It shows no mercy. And Paul hints at this idea of of unchecked anger being an opportunity for the devil in Ephesians chapter 4. And what it does is it stirs up other sins, too. We read that in Proverbs 29. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. That's true. You know, think about the, what are the other sort of commandments that people break as a result of anger? How about dishonoring parents? Number five. Murder, that one's obvious. Number six gets thrown in by default. How about adultery? Sexual immorality. Getting even through infidelity. Or relieving your anger through sexual impurity. How about stealing? Angry enough to say, that's mine, I should have it. Which is also coveting number 10. And then that middle one, lying. You ever say, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) So it does, it stirs up all kinds of sins. We get into all kinds of trouble. Anger leads the heart into a hotbed of of sin because it's, it's this emotion again that arises out of a judgment, wrong judgments. And not only does it stir up other sins in us, can it stir up sins in other people too? Your anger ever caused someone else to sin? A harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15.1 says. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Why? You'll learn his ways and find a snare for yourself, Proverbs 22.24-25. And it's not just harsh words. Let me stop here for a second, okay? Angry silence is hateful too. Angry silence is hateful too. I'm not saying... I'm not saying men don't do this. I'm just saying women are better at it. Being cold, quiet, and withdrawn, ladies, is not being submissive. Don't don't believe that. It's murderous. A quiet hatred is hatred nonetheless. We're talking about the heart here, not just outward behavior, right? All of this fruit we can see of anger, all the ways we see it manifest and the damage we can see that it can do is a problem, but it's not the problem, is it? Sinful anger is based on sinful judgments we make. We make wrong judgments because we have wrong hearts. So what's the root of all this? That's point number two, the root of anger. The cause of anger isn't external. We've said that. It comes from within. It's not based on what happens to us. It begins in the heart. External circumstances only reveal what's already there, right? Our circumstances, the people around us, tend to just squeeze out what's already inside. You squeeze a ketchup bottle, you're going to get ketchup. You're not going to get apple juice. It just squeezes out what's already there. And what's already there, take note of this, what's already there is enough to interfere with your relationship with God. 
That's apparent here in this passage. You see what Jesus says there in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly, he says. That unsettled dispute, that discord, that disharmony between you and your neighbor, it affects your worship of God. I mean, we'll, that, that's going to come up next week when we take communion, isn't it? Right? That's going to come up next week when we take communion. Your relationship with others, y'all, has a lot to do with your relationship with the Lord. Remember, love God and love neighbors, not either or. We want to grow in our relationship with the Lord. We want to mature spiritually. But what that often looks like is growing in our relationships to other people and being reconciled to them. Now, hear me, our reconciliation to God is not contingent upon our reconciliation to others. But our ability to be reconciled to others is expected because we have been reconciled to God. Something you hear us say at King's Church often is, is we want to be a place, we genuinely want to be a place where people can have a true experience of God. Everybody wants some kind of touchy-feely experience of something divine, right? Well, we've got God as he has been given to us in his word, right? To be able to come and have a true experience of the one true and living God, to find community with other believers and to live on purpose. Why? Because that's what we've been given. That's what we've been given is redeemed people. In the garden, our connection, our relationship with our maker was severed by sin. And it destroyed the relationship between the man and the woman, didn't it? Messed that all up. That all of a sudden got hard and it stayed hard. That's been redeemed too. That's been redeemed too. And to live on purpose, wanting to do what is pleasing to God in the earth and being instruments that he uses to carry about his, his purposes. So it's no good saying, I love Jesus, I just, I just don't like people. Yeah, me and Jesus are cool, I just don't get along with people in the church. Friend, the love of God is not in you. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love the God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 through 21. Spiritual maturity works horizontally. And if we're angry with our neighbor, we have to examine, what's that about? Why is that there? What's the real issue? And usually, it's entitlement. We want something too much. We want something too much. That's what causes us to get angry. You know, I, I can't remember where he said it. I actually looked this week and couldn't find it, but I remember C.S. Lewis writing something somewhere about this idea that a man wakes up every morning the proprietor of 24 hours in a day, right? And because of his, his commitment to that, his, his belief of that, that that's, that's his, right? He's been given this time to use as he wills. He soon finds out that that gets chipped away at and, and picked on all day long. And all this time just slips on by and he feels like he's been robbed by the end of the day because that's how life works. And that's frustrating. We feel that entitlement to that 24 hours. Entitlement is what gets us into trouble though and not getting what we think we deserve. When we want something too much, remember? 
Not getting what we think we deserve. What is it you think you deserve? Respect? Maybe an apology? Whatever it is, it ties us up in knots. James says in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You quarrel because you do not get your way. We'd be pretty pleasant if we only ever got our way, wouldn't we? But you always getting your way probably means someone else isn't getting theirs, so how's that work? Who's entitled to have their way? James says it's your passions, it's your desires. That, that, that's not to say all desires are sinful, by the way, okay? You may desire obedience from your children. And, and, and you might lose your mind when they disobey. <laughs> so was, was the desire for the obedience sinful? Was that a sinful desire? No. Was your response to it? Yes. You might desire your boss stop treating you as a child and that they would acknowledge how reliant they are on you and your faithfulness and your dedication to your work. It's not a sinful desire. But how's your response? So it's not that your desires are sinful, it's that you're willing to sin when you don't get what you desire. That's the issue. The root of anger is, at bottom, a false belief that the world is at your service. Now, I know you'd never admit that, but that's how sneaky sin is, right? I often tell people, you know, the devil's not that cartoon guy with the horns and the, you know, fiery pitchfork and the long tail and all that kind of stuff. It's easy to hate that guy. But as often has been said, the best trick of the devil is to get you to believe he's never there, that he's not working, that he's not real. We're easily deceived. Our hearts deceive us. At bottom, the root of anger is a false belief that the world is at your service. It is an accusation that God got it wrong. It's a discontentment with the reality that you don't rule the world. That's why it's so serious. That's why it's bigger than just the fruit of it. We can't excuse ourselves by saying, well, we're good here because we're not lashing out in anger. Nobody knows that we're a pile of rage inside, and so we're pulling it off. That's not it. It's bigger than the fruit. The root system is bigger than the apple hanging delicately on the limb, isn't it? The ripeness of the apple is, is only telling of the vitality of the tree that root of anger within us. What Jesus wants us to recognize here is that it's not enough to not be a serial killer, as we said. The law demands more than that, always has. He reveals here that we have untamed hearts, as we said. Hearts capable of all kinds of evil and anger's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. He's got a list spanning the rest of chapter five we're gonna get into in coming weeks of places our untamed hearts take us. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. In Proverbs. I share that with my sons a lot. Self-control. An awareness of when you're out of control. So that you'll plead with God to 
temper you, to tame you, so that you won't be quick to sin, but slow to anger, right? Can't just deal with the symptoms of anger, can't just deal with the fruit and call it a day. We can't assume because we haven't literally ended someone's life with hate-filled hearts that we've obeyed the sixth commandment to not murder. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? If someone has an infection, right, we don't just, we don't just treat the, the symptoms, we don't just mask the pain and call it a day. We have to treat the infection. So what's the remedy for anger? This is point number three. Can an angry person remedy this situation? Is there hope for us at all? Here's where the gospel comes in, y'all, and gains ground. This is where it gains ground. It gets traction in our lives. It's where it's not just something we believe, but something that takes action, that has an effect, that moves and works and transforms our lives. With God's grace, all sinful behaviors can be overcome. Not enough to justify you. Nobody said that, okay? But sinful behaviors can be overcome. The biblical way of dealing with anger is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you want the short answer there? What's the remedy for anger? The the gospel. And now, I know what you're thinking because I've thought it before, okay? I've thought it before. Oh, that's just a pat answer and a cop-out. Is it? Is it? Would you sooner count to 10 when you're getting angry than remind yourself that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that deserved the wrath of God? But because Christ came and died in your place, you have been forgiven and you have received grace and mercy? Count to 10 or count the cost of your redemption? Which is a better remedy for anger? And you say, well, that won't work. Have you tried it? It's easier to try literally anything else because nothing else will humble you as quickly as this. That you were once a sinner deserving the wrath of God, but now by grace you have been saved. Nothing will humble you faster. And when you're angry, you don't want to be humbled. You don't want somebody to talk you off the ledge. You're you're worked up, boy, seeing red. Don't want to be reasoned with. Y'all, it really is that easy, though. If you think it doesn't work, maybe you haven't tried it. Just a suggestion, right? That might not be true. I don't know. But maybe you haven't tried it. Reminding yourself of who you are and who you belong to can very quickly reorient you to the world and to your circumstances and to your relationship with others, which is what we're talking about this morning. Because you remember what you received wasn't justice. It was mercy. Reminding yourself of the gospel stops the flow of feeling and brings us back into a contemplative state where you're able to reason according to scripture, to ask the question, what does God say? That's why we have to start with that. What does God say? Remembering the gospel and the forgiveness you've received by grace reorients you. When you remember the mercy God has shown you and the price he paid, how can you stay angry with somebody? Unless you're just convincing yourself of it. It's hard to do. All other remedies for anger management Take a look around. 
Sadly, you'll find unbiblical treatments of anger in Christian bookshops worldwide. Should be the last place you would find that garbage. But they're loaded with them. All other remedies for anger management counsel you to redirect the flamethrower of your rage in another direction. The gospel alone pours living water on that fire and puts it out. The gospel has that kind of power. Now let's touch on a few practical things here because I don't want to leave you empty-handed, all right? I don't want to just leave you with, with theory, okay? God gives us practical wisdom and advice. That's what the book of Proverbs is, right? First, first bit of advice, I would say, preach the gospel to yourself. We just said that. Remind yourself of the forgiveness you've received in Christ and let that good news reorient you in the moment. And you know, maybe you're not persuaded. You, and I would just say, y'all, you can roll your eyes at that advice if you want. I mean, just go read some other self-help book that's not written by God. See how well that works. His word is designed to nurture your soul, y'all. It is sufficient. It is sufficient. All right, now second thing, address anger quickly would be the next bit of advice, okay? Preach the gospel to yourself. Address it quickly. Be angry and do not sin, Paul says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, Ephesians 4.26. Don't let time pass, right? Don't let time pass. People say time heals all wounds. Maybe true in a sense, but not here, right? These wounds fester the longer they go untreated. Time will not heal these wounds. Be alarmed by your anger. I had a counseling professor in seminary who happens to be one of the most brilliant, most godly, uh, admirable men I've ever met. And he shares a story about a man that he was counseling, he and his wife, and his angry outbursts, the fruit of his anger, was having a devastating impact on his relationship with his wife and with his, with his kids. And he asked him, my, my professor, Dr. Neuheiser is his name, Dr. Neuheiser asked the man, what would you do if an intruder was beating down your door and trying to come in and do harm to your whole family? And he said what any one of us would say, right, guys? I would fight with every ounce of my strength to my dying breath. Wouldn't you, Thomas? I would give my dying breath to protect my family. Dr. Neuheiser tells him, your anger is an equally serious threat to the well-being of your family. And when you give in to your rage, you are inviting the devil into your home. You must resist your anger as vigorously as you would fight the intruder. Because it's that damaging. If we don't see it that way, it's because we're blinded by sin. It's that damaging. So take it that seriously and address it quickly. Address it quickly. Now third, prepare your heart each day with prayer, right? Prepare your heart before you go into battle, right? The armor of God doesn't do any good hanging in the closet. You know, we're gonna need that. That's the Christian's uniform. Don't leave home without it. You need to be prepared for temptation at the beginning of the day because temptation will come. So pray, tell God what you probably already know. If you struggle with anger, 
Maybe you, don't, maybe you don't even realize it. Maybe you're realizing it this morning. Praise God. Praise the Holy Spirit that he convicts. He brings conviction. That's a blessing. You can get somewhere with that. You can get saved with that. Amen? Conviction of sin. If you struggle with anger, tell God, I don't think of myself as angry, but I am. I am. And I'm too blinded by my own sin and my selfish desires to even be able to put my finger on it. Show it to me. Reveal it to me today, Lord. Examine me and find me out so I can see. Ask to be able to see. Ask the Lord to change your desires. Okay, here's the fourth one. Y'all, I, I, I always have to cut out a lot in sermons. I've always got like twice as much as I bring with me on, on Sunday morning. But when I came to this list, like I just, I couldn't cut it much. This stuff's important. So fourth, take counsel from God and his word and not from man and the world. Take counsel from God and his word and not man and the world. What does God say about anger? Here's lots of things as we saw, right? We weren't just taking the hike around Proverbs at the beginning of the service. Colossians 3, it says, put all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech aside. Those are the former ways. So I want to say something that I think came up in our community group one time. People are like, huh? But it's true. Y'all listen to me. Venting is not biblical. Venting is not biblical. It may be a therapeutic exercise. It is not a Christian exercise. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, always, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 29, 11. It's the one we started with. So fifth and lastly, when you feel anger rising up in you, despite all the reminders we've just been through, ask the question, what is it I want so much right now? That should help you get to the root of it all. What is it I want so much right now? Why am I so angry? What is it I want so much right now? And what you may want may not be sinful, but the desire for it is so strong that it is idolatry, and that is sinful. The desire in and of itself may not be sinful, but your strong enough desire for it, that you're willing to sin for it, that is sinful. Desire can be legitimate, but if it's a controlling desire, it is idolatry. And the remedy to idolatry is always, because idolatry is false worship. The remedy to idolatry, to false worship, is true worship. And that's what these practical remedies are all aimed at. True worship of the one true and living God. So what I've just listed here isn't merely a scripture for behavior modification. Right? I said earlier we got a puppy on Thursday. Pray for me. You know how I'm going to train that puppy? I'm going to condition the responses that I want. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to condition the responses that I want. When it chews on a child's toy, I'm going to take that toy away and replace it with one I want her to chew on. When I want its attention, I'm going to let her get a whiff of a strong-smelling treat so that I can coax her into obedience. That's how secular psychologists suggest you deal with your anger. Problem is, you're not a dog.
You are an embodied soul made inside and out by a God who made you in his own image and to think his thoughts after him. And so in closing here, I want to offer you some encouragement. You don't have to live at the mercy of an unmerciful emotion. That's what anger is. It's an unmerciful emotion. You don't need to live in bondage to that. We all get angry, and most of the time, the anger that we have is not justified. It's a sinful anger, and it can be remedied. That's encouraging. When we tell ourselves we can't control our anger, when we, when we tell ourselves that you know, our anger always just gets the best of us, we're actually just lying to ourselves. We're lying about ourselves. That's not who we are. You know, that kind of talk is just going back to our old selves. But our old selves, if we remember, have died with Christ and been buried with him. We have been raised again to new life in him. So we're no longer controlled by the flesh, but filled with the spirit. We're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, Romans 12. The exercise of the remembering is the renewing. The exercise of remembering the gospel is the renewing. Paul's always talking about putting off, putting on, right? Putting off the old self, putting on the new self, putting off anger, putting on grace. That's the remedy. And if it seems too easy, I've been there, if it seems too easy, then why don't you just try it? Here's a shocker. Sinful people are going to disappoint you. Sinful people are going to disappoint you. Sinful people are going to let you down. And we're all sinners, so guess what? You're going to disappoint people. You're going to let people down. So what are we to do? We love our neighbors, because loving God looks like loving neighbor. It's hard to love the God you cannot see if you don't love the image of God you can see. Spiritual maturity, like it or not, is most often grown not in your prayer closet, but in your relationships with others. This may come as news to you, or it may, may be really uh, hard to hear this morning, but dying to self, as, as Jesus commands us, is easier to do in private than it is with people around. Spiritual maturity is often grown in our horizontal relationships with others. And look at the place he's given us to do it, y'all this place you know this is a lovely group of people y'all are some of the sweetest sinners I've ever met in my life we've got a good thing here you know I can see the, the mingling of very different people with very different stories and very different experiences growing together and growing strong it's happening it's happening right in front of us but be on the lookout for anger that emotion that arises out of a judgment. Know that your judgment is, is weak, it's fallen. Know that it's an accusation that God got it wrong when in actuality, he actually got it very right. He got it very right and he means for you to grow in your relationship with him, in your relationship with others, especially those of us sharing the same air right now. This is his blessing to you. We are a gift to one another. Let's, let's pray. 
Lord, you are God and not man. You don't see things as man sees. Your days are not as the days of men, and your years are not as man's years. As heaven is high above the earth, so are your thoughts above our thoughts and your ways above our ways. God, we acknowledge this morning, as we did in our confession of sin, you are right to be angry with sin, and we confess our anger is mostly about our self-righteousness and our discontentment with our circumstances, which, which you have decreed. I ask, Father, that you would make us malleable, moldable, teachable, so that we can enjoy your ways and works rather than be angered and disappointed by them. Help us to be submissive to the renewing work of your spirit in our lives and to recognize that our brothers and sisters around us are all works in progress. I pray that would fascinate us and excite us. I pray, God, that we here as a family in this church would always take you and your word and your worship very seriously, but that we would never take ourselves so seriously. Help us to love one another as you intend and to find the blessing there. In Jesus' name, amen.